Welcome to Access Utah. I am Sherry Quinn. Today on the program, the author of The Boy is Gone, Conversations with a Mau Mau General, joins us to talk about her book. When she was 23, Laura Lee Huttenbach went on a six-month backpacking trip from Johannesburg, South Africa to Cairo, Egypt, along the African East Coast in 2006. In Maru, Kenya, she met Mr. Jafflet Thambu, an 85-year-old tea farmer who went by the name The General. Thambu had earned the title of The General during the 1950s as a leader of the Mau Mau Rebellion, the indigenous Kenyan struggle against British colonial rule. He talked to Laura Lee about his experiences as a great-grandfather, teacher, town celebrity, farmer, and a Mau Mau freedom fighter. Laura Lee lived with the general and his family on their coffee and tea farm for several months. The general shared not only his stories, but also his life, his home, his family, and his resources with Laura Lee. He even adopted her as an honorary Juju granddaughter. I was going to backpack in Africa mostly because I was curious. I didn't really have a good sense of the place. And um, conveniently, one of my best friends was doing Peace Corps in Lesotho, which is an independent country inside of South Africa. And she invited me to join her on this backpacking trip. And um, I did not go with a book in mind. I just wanted to um, see the the countries of the East Coast of Africa and and meet people and ask questions. And basically, it was just curiosity that propelled me there, not not to write a book. (laughs) How did you meet the general and who is the general? Uh, the general, his, his real name is Jasplit Tambu, um, and he is from Kenya. Uh, and I met him on this backpacking trip in 2006. I was 23 years old uh, when I met him. And we had a mutual friend named Wilson who lived in Atlanta, uh, which is my hometown. And so before I left to travel in Africa, Wilson suggested that I meet the general. He actually said that a young American ambassador was coming to visit um, and that was me. I understand. Did you go back again to record a story? Yes, I did. After I met him in 2006, um, I, I went back to the state. Well, I continued on. Um, I visited Ethiopia and Egypt. It was just a, about a six-month backpacking trip. And then I went back to the states and couldn't get the general story out of my head. I only spent about three days with him the first time, um, but I really wanted to go back. I just felt like I was in the presence of this. Um, wise man that made Kenyan history and by extension African history come alive and it was accessible, his stories. And um, so I wound up going back in 2009 um, and living on his family's coffee and tea farm in in a rural village in Kenya in the eastern slopes of Mount Kenya. How old was he then? When I met him in 06, he was 85. So then um, when we did the interviews, he was 88 um, or 89. I don't, we don't know exactly the year. He was either born in 1921 or 1922. But yeah, he had a lot of energy. His cell phone rang more than mine did, for sure. <laughs> he was managing, the, um, he was running his tea farm and uh, managing a farmer's cooperative um, and just very active in the community. So he was a very lively, energetic 88-year-old man. What kind of tea did he grow? I think just the black tea. Um, There's, I think, one farm in Kenya that grows green tea. And so it must have been beautiful. Can you describe the landscape? Yes, it was green. (laughs) Less uh, beautiful tea is is terraced and just kind of cascaded down the hill to the valleys below. It was, uh, they, they get two rainy seasons. So during that season, everything is just green and and beautiful. So what was your daily life like there? Were you uh, working on the tea farm? Um, I, (laughs) the general taught me how to pick tea. He and his wife, Jessica, um, took me out to the tea farm the first time I went to Kenya. And um, Jessica gave me this big wicker basket um, and told me to pick two leaves and a bud that's um, to ensure the highest grade of tea. So uh, most of the workers on the tea farm, you know, their hands moved in a blur. They were picking so fast they could just see that. And I had to really concentrate to get two leaves and a bud. And um, so as I'm doing this, the, the whole farm kind of stops to watch me picking tea and the general stands up straight and uh, he says, oh, you're the best white worker we have ever seen. You're very good. 
And I was like, oh, thank you, um, you know, General. And how many other white workers have you seen? And he said, uh, none, but you're very good. <laughs> so um, I did not work too much on the tea farm. I um, don't think I would have been very effective as a laborer, but I sat down uh, with the general on interviews. I interviewed also uh, other people in his, in his family in the community, um, and I would just kind of tag along with him to uh, different events that, that he had to go to. Um, occasionally when I would go running, um, running is not a, a common pastime as a stereotype goes. In the village I lived uh, in Kenya, and people would just look at me like I was crazy and be like, Mzungu, why are you running? <laughs> and I would say, oh, I'm just, just burning energy, just exercising. And they're like, is somebody chasing you? <laughs> and I was like, no, no. Um, just wanting to clear my head after a day of interviews. And so how did he become introduced to the Mama? What, what's his story there? And was that in 1952? Yes, he took um, initiation in the, in the Mama was through an oath. So he took the oath in 1952. If I could just tell a little anecdote, when, when we were driving back from the tea farm to Nairobi, we passed a hotel called the, the Norfolk Hotel, and the general pointed at it and said, before independence, I, I could never enter a hotel like that. Only white people like you could go in there. And he didn't say it with animosity, just said it as if you were, you know, reporting history. Um, and so basically before independence in the 1940s and 50s, Kenyans were living as second-class citizens in their own country. They were paying taxes, but they couldn't vote. They uh, couldn't grow what they wanted to grow. And so eventually he... Uh, decided to take up arms, and uh, he went to the forest east of Mount Kenya and stayed there for about two years fighting British colonialism, basically. And did he tell you specific details and stories about that experience and what it was like fighting them, and was he ever conflicted? Um, No, he was pretty honest. I guess because we had... um, the benefit of, of a lot of time, he wasn't, it wasn't highly politicized anymore. So he reflected on his experiences in the story, uh, in the forest, excuse me, pretty thoughtfully. He, he would give me details like um, trapping buffalo. That's how they got their meat. Um, they would dig a hole about eight feet deep um, and then cover the hole with banana leaves. And then when the buffaloes would walk over, they would fall and get trapped down there in in the hole and, the general even told me that some men were suggesting that they put a spear. They they wanted to dig a, a shallower hole and then put a spear at the bottom so that when the buffalo walked over, the, the buffalo would, you know, get pierced and, and get killed by the spear. But the general said, no, we're not going to do that because, you know, we're walking around the forest too and we can't see where all the holes are and some of our men might fall in. And that actually happened to the general. Um <laughs> He dug a hole. He fell in one of the holes. So he used that as a, well, he felt kind of foolish, but um, he used that as an example of, um, see, we, we shouldn't take shortcuts. We should, you know, err on the side of safety and, and dig a big hole. So we don't get hurt if we fall in it. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how many people was he, was he with when he was in the forest fighting and living? And- he, he left from his village, he led about 58 men um, from his village into the forest. And there were thousands of men fighting throughout the Mount Kenya and the Aberdari ranges. But his, his particular group, when he went to the forest, was about 58 men. Did he tell you stories about those relationships with those men and losing some of them? Or how difficult was it for them fighting? Well, they had um, a lot of different elements um, against them. First, the their equipment was not as advanced. They had machetes, basically, were their main weapons and homemade guns. And they actually uh, would count bullets. And so each each general would have, you know, five or ten bullets, and they would have to share bullets. And so for sure the equipment um, was a challenge, and finding food was a challenge, especially his, his last year in the forest. A lot of his stories dealt with finding food in, in the reserves and in, in the areas in the farms around the forest. And and the men he had respectful relationships with, I guess. He the British were bombing and so when the bomber planes came over he shared a lot of recollections of um, losing men to 
not only bomber planes, but to attacks and from from the British forces that came through the forest and, and also animals. Even there's a, a few men that got killed from attacks by buffalo and elephants. And it was a challenging time for sure. Yeah. And I understand that he was captured by the British and was expecting to be released, but was actually put into a, a rehabilitation and detention camps. And can you describe what those were? Mm-hmm. The, the British set up um, a whole system of, of detention camps throughout Kenya. And because Mau Mau, the, the rebellion, it was, it was almost a civil war between people, the loyalists with the British government too, and the people that were fighting for independence. And so the, the Mau Mau soldiers couldn't be released directly into their home villages because they would maybe have conflicts with them. And so they set up this kind of terrible system, which they called the pipeline. Uh, the British set up a system called the pipeline, which first sent them to sent the former Mau Mau soldiers uh, into detention camps where they had to confess um, everything that they did and they were punished. There was a lot of torture um, that went on. And then they went to, um, when they were released from detention, once they'd confessed, then they went to another camp that was closer to home. And, and it was usually involved some labor. And then they were eventually released to, to go home once the colonial authorities determined that they weren't going to start um, old conflicts. And so where was his family during this time? And how were they faring? You know, how, who was taking care of them? When he left uh, the forest, Jessica, his wife, um, and they had three children together, Jessica was also arrested and she was taken to prison. The Two of the children went with the general's mom and his parents, and then the other child was only one year old, and he went with Jessica to prison. And one of the hardest stories that Jessica told me was when she was in prison, she had a stomachache and she had to go to the hospital for it. And when she came back, she couldn't find uh, Karimi, her son, um, and couldn't find out what happened to him. And it turned out he had been sent back to uh, the general's mom, but she didn't know that. And she said she said a prayer in, in prison. She said, God, please, uh, I don't mind what condition I find them in, but please let me find them alive. And she said when she found them, she said, God fulfilled her prayer, but basically didn't do anything else. The only thing they had in them was life. They were anemic. They were surviving off bananas. They were very weak. So the the family definitely suffered because of his involvement in the Mau Mau Rebellion. And how is he viewed today in his community? And it sounds like he's pretty respected. He he was. He he actually passed away last April. Um, He, um, at the age of 92, he went to India with the Farmers Cooperative. Actually, he was doing an agricultural study there and had a wonderful trip and came home and after two days home, had a heart attack and and died. Um, But before he did his funeral, there was, I think, 2,500 people attended. Um, He was very well respected in his community. But even uh, with his legacy, nobody really had recorded anything about him. So... um, I guess it was good timing that I came and recorded his oral history and um, that I'm able to introduce people interested in Kenya and Africa to to his story. So he also came to America, right? He did visit America in 2006, which was um, the year that I met him in Kenya, but he came before. He came for um, about a month and did like a little tour. And, and so, yeah, he had, he had been to America right before I met him. Um, but we, we never met in America. He was really hoping to come back and I would love to have done interviews with him. Uh, we had a, a, a wonderful rapport. He was kind of, he basically became my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry that we won't be able to do publicity and stuff together because he's just mm-hmm. such a special person in my life. But yeah, I can imagine. And and so then it was pretty easy to talk to him, right? Because you you had this connection. Yeah, I, I, we had a, a great rapport. Uh, yeah. English was his third language. His mother tongue is Kimeru. And then he speaks, or he spoke Swahili. Um, and English was his third language. He learned English when he was a teenager. I love all the different names that he had 
Jaslet, uh, that came from um, the Book of Chronicles. When when they were baptized, they had to choose a name that appeared in the Bible. So he chose Jaslet. And then Tambu was his family name, or actually it was his manhood name when they got circumcised, which was a uh, traditional rite of passage that happened when they were 16. His father picked that name. Tambu means a man who does not like to waste time. And so that was his name. But it, in the community, he wore a lot of hats. So he was sometimes called chairman, yeah, from his role in the cooperative or from his role in, in, in Jordan Sheke. And Jordan Sheke is the Council of Elders. Um, and he was also called Mwalimu. Uh, which means teacher in Swahili. It's interesting. I was just reading a sentence about that he grew up wearing goatskin loincloths and ended up eventually going from these loincloths to a business suit, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is really, Mm -hmm. really interesting, that image. (laughs) Yes, that transformation. That was one of the reasons that drew me to the story. I'm just like, how does that happen? Um, And it's through a lot of hard work, (laughs) basically, Yeah, and changing times. And how is his wife now, Jessica? Mm-hmm. Jessica, um, she is doing much better. She, When I was there in December 2013, she was not in good health. But since um, since then, she is living with, um, she's been living with Kadi, who is one of their daughters and in Isiolo, which is a little bit north of, of where I was staying in northern Kenya. Um, and, and I haven't spoken to her. She does not speak English. So we, we would always speak through someone translating, but and she's the hardest worker I've ever met, for sure. But she's doing much better from everything that I hear, so that's great news. And and how were they so successful with their farm? It sounds like he, he became quite a successful farmer and was quite passionate about it. And Jessica, too, managed the farm. And actually, when I asked the general what, what drew him to Jessica originally, um, he said, well, at first he said the character of her father, and then he said that Jessica was just such a hard worker and a great manager and made her that made her the best partner for him. He also said that was his proudest accomplishment was marrying the right woman um, as a partner in life. And um, the kids also pitched in a lot at the farm. I was talking to Kadi and she said, um, you know, <laughs> if we had known all about uh, child labor laws and stuff, we, we probably would have <laughs> reported our parents for, the amount of work we had to do on the farm. Um, but now, of course, she's grateful. She you know, taught them to be self-sufficient and um, hardworking and good values. And she's very grateful for the upbringing that she had. Um, but she says they worked really hard. Do you know the story of how they met? Yes. The, the general was teaching. Um, he was a primary school teacher. And Jessica had been a student, but she left in the in the fifth grade. And so they had met, and the general was teaching her older brother. And and then after uh, a couple years, I think Jessica was eighteen, um, and and the general was five or six years older. Uh, and he visited the family, and her father was a good farmer that the general respected a lot. And it was a little uncommon in the community. Like people were surprised that he was pursuing Jessica um, because most people assumed that he would pursue like another teacher or someone with his same level of education. But he just said that he was very impressed with Jessica um, and her work ethic and, and how she was brought up. And so he wanted her. And he said, you know, people with resumes don't always produce the best worker, uh, basically, or the best position for the job that he just respected her character a lot and and married her he just envisioned so many so many changes in kenya and what was your sense of how he felt about his country and all the transitions and multi-layers that his people had to go through and even just his community and i know it's very complex really because there are many different cultures there Mm -hmm. it's a great question he i think he's not nostalgic for how he grew up. He was glad. He was grateful to his family and came from a loving family, but he is very grateful to be able to participate in world culture through reading and writing and selling his product and growing what he wants. I think he he said that now that they've gained civilization, he said that they can go back to the culture, basically, that... um, now they have some of the the modern tools and, and medicine and a more comfortable life that he would like the young people to reflect more on their traditions and their sense of community 
um, and and call people back to, to their original culture. And I think one reason he was so open to, to me coming into his life and recording this story was that a little bit regretful or sad that his own grandchildren weren't asking him the questions that um, he had asked his grandparents and his great-grandparents. Uh, so he was worried that the, the, oral tr- the oral history and the tradition of um, passing down stories from other generations would be lost. Um, and so I guess I came at the right time and, and recorded his story before, before he passed away. And did he express his outlook on the future of Kenya and, and maybe his local community, especially as a farmer and, you know, so tied to the earth? And did he believe in climate change? I'm wondering if that was a topic that you addressed. He did see a lot of changes that he used to be able to predict down to the day. Um, when the rains would start, um, and and that has changed a little bit. Water is a conversation that we kept coming back to, just getting enough water for irrigation and and whatnot. But yeah, he on, on the future of Kenya, he um, didn't really like to talk about modern Kenyan politics. He would say, "Oh, refer me to the old things. Um, you can get that stuff from from other people. They're better at answering that." But another anecdote: he when he went to he visited Georgia and he visited the Kennesaw battlefield um, site of the Civil War. And um, when he was walking around there in, in the mountains, he noticed that it was basically like the Mau Mau. He called it the American Mau Mau. Um, and he said basically when, when countries become independent and, and when they go through conflicts, it takes a while to sort things out. But he thinks Kenyans are, are sorting out their things. So I would say he's hopeful uh, about developments, but he much prefers to talk about the old times. Uh, the, the book is incredibly detailed. How much time did you spend with him, uh, and was it every day for several hours? How did that work? And, and also with, with English as his third language, how uh, difficult was it to understand and uh, imagine? I'm, yeah, I'm just curious about the process of how you were able to get all of these stories that are incredibly detailed. When I went back to, to visit the general and do and, and write the book and get the stories. It was spring of 09, so three months, and we would sit down almost every day for three or four hours. And I came with you know notebooks full of questions. Uh, but often he was such a good storyteller that he would answer my questions before I had the chance to ask them. And silence was often produced the the most thoughtful answers on his part. So I tried to not interject as much. I just let him speak. Most of the important stories he would tell two or three different times. And so when I got back to the States, I transcribed all of our interviews, which in the first set of interviews came to about 1,200 single-spaced pages of, of transcripts. Um, and Did you transcribe? And yeah, it was, it was a 1,200 pages single space. And what I would do is pull all of the sections for, so for instance, the night that he left, uh, that he decided to go to the forest to fight in Mau Mau, I would pull the three or four times that he told me that story. And sometimes if someone else was sitting in, then the delivery would change a little bit based on the point he was trying to make, but the content always remained the same. Um, and I would line up the, the stories next to each other and then pick either the best version of the story or um, fill in some details with other stories. Uh, so that was kind of my methodology for when I edited all of the transcripts into the manuscript because um, the, the book is his first-person narrative, his oral history. That must have been incredibly intense. Uh, that's a lot to transcribe. I, I, <laughs> since I have done a lot, I know how much time it takes. <laughs> so. Yeah, about, yeah, I would say one hour of spoken conversation, would you agree, takes about four or five hours to transcribe. Right. Do you know how many hours you spent transcribing? I think I came home with about 100 hours of conversation. So let's say 500 hours of uh, transcribing, and I I have never cared to do the math. <laughs> it was a long, um, it was, they were really long days. Um, yeah. And, yeah, kind of uh, a lonely, isolating task, too. But yeah. at, at the same way, it, it allowed me to stay connected to the story. And I felt like I was hanging out with the general every day, which was great. What what time frame did you do that in? Let's see. I got back in 09, and I think transcribing took six, maybe six months, between four and six months. And then um, 
I started the next process, which was organizing into a manuscript and um, and separating into sections. And I I finished the first draft um, in in December 2010, so less than two years after I first went. And but writing is rewriting, and so I just kept on working on it and, until it took the form and went through a couple different forms, but I, I wanted to preserve his voice um, so that it's recognizable to his family and his community. And I didn't really think I could improve on a lot of the ways that he told the story. So I um, kept it as an oral history. What were his feelings about about the book and having his oral history available and his stories available for so many to read and anyone who wants to read it actually? He he loved the process, um, and people had suggested for a while, I guess, that he write a book. He was also pretty familiar with how Kenya had been represented um, in the West. He told me one story that um, one of his colleagues in the tea industry went to a conference in Mauritius, and um, I don't know what country this guy was from, but he, he was talking to uh, the general colleague and he said oh I hear in Kenya that everyone lives on trees um lives on top of trees is that is that true and the the man looked at him and said yeah that's that's very true um the plane that I took from Kenya it left from the top of a tree and um your ambassador lives in a tree and Kenya is a wonderful place where people live in trees and so the general told me the story as a joke that he was aware of, of how people saw Kenya and, and him, and he wanted to be understood for who he is and not where he comes from. And so he was very willing to share his stories and be another layer in, in the stories of, that come from Kenya and, by extension, Africa. So he, he loved the process, and we had a lot of fun together, too, a lot of laughing, and um, he had a great sense of humor. And so he was, I think, honored to have a young person that wanted to tell his story. What story or stories stick out to you the most or what one of your favorite stories, perhaps? I think a lot of um, our interactions, the the buffalo story of, of him hunting in the forest was a good one. Uh, well, one of the stories he told me uh, from his time fighting in the forest was how they got their meat and protein, which is killing buffaloes. Um, and they they trapped buffaloes by digging holes, which are about eight feet deep and then covering them with banana leaves and when the buffalo would walk over the hole it would fall uh, into the hole and then they could go in and kill uh, the buffalo and some of the men wanted um, to not dig a, a really deep hole but dig a shallow hole and then put a spear at the bottom of it so that when the buffalo fell it would be punctured through the heart and killed that way uh, but the general said no I don't I don't want to do that because we're all walking around and we don't know where all the holes are. And if we fall in it, we're going to get killed. And that's not a good idea. Um, and then his point was proven um, <laughs> because he was, he had spent the whole day digging a hole and he had left his coat hanging on a tree and he went back to the camp and then he, he came back to grab his coat and he <laughs> didn't see the hole where it was and he fell in the hole. And um, he was laughing about the story, but he told all of his men, you see, if we if we had used the shortcut and put a spear down there, then you would have the general being your meat. So that's a good thing that we work a little harder, but ensure the safety of, of our men here in the forest. That was one of my favorite stories, but um, it's hard to, to pick one when I was <laughs> had a, a lot of care to choose all the stories that were included in the book. So. Why, why do you think these stories are important to tell and to, uh, especially here in the United States? And what do you hope that readers will get from hearing these stories and learning about this time and especially about the Mau Mau and this man's journey? And Well, I hope there's a Nigerian novelist, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I don't know if you've heard her TED Talk, maybe. She had a great quote. She said that, um, the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but they're incomplete, and they make one story become the only story. And I, I think what I hope to do is introduce people to the general, who is this wise man who happens to be from Kenya. Um, and it, the images we get from, from media about Kenya and Africa are 
are usually sad or scary or confusing. And I want the general story to just come to people's minds when they're um, absorbing these images and headlines from, from Kenya and Africa. And I hope that by knowing the general well or by getting to know him, you can get a framework in your head of, of Kenyan history, knowing that the general was born in 1922 and the trajectory of his life. And you can kind of feed the images that you get and that you absorb from, from news stories in, into that framework and then uh, kind of grow in your knowledge from there. So I hope anyone that's looking for an accessible book about Kenya and Africa that you could just be introduced to the general and, and learn his story and, and then grow from there. Very nice. Has his family responded to you about the book? Yes. they. I just sent um, his youngest son, uh, his name is Mordedi, a copy. I just got all of my copies on Friday. So the first thing I did was um, went to the post office and sent him a copy. And um, I'll probably be going back to Kenya in December to launch the book there. And it's a big priority of mine to have the book available in Kenya because that's where the stories are from and that's where the stories should be preserved. Um, and so I'll probably go back to Kenya and, and do a, a formal launch there in, in December and hopefully distribution will be in place by then. Great. And what is the General History Project this, as a nonprofit you started? If you could tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that project. Mm-hmm. The, the General History Project is um, an organization, a, a nonprofit organization and um, tax exempt that seeks to preserve oral histories of people in, in developing countries. The model wouldn't necessarily be a book like this because it, <laughs> that's taken me four or five years to write, um, but just to, to preserve uh, oral histories of, of aging people in, in aging communities in developing countries where preservation of history may not be a priority. And to be completely honest, I have not been able to keep up the, the general history project. It's still, the infrastructure is still in place, but I don't have the resources to run it. Um, and so I hope that through this process, I can team up with someone that has a similar passion to preserve uh, oral history and that I can get that going again. And this is a wonderful book in oral history. And what's next for you? My current project is writing the biography of uh, a South Beach character. I'm living in Miami Beach, and he is a man that goes by the name Raven. Um, And he started running in 1975. He runs eight miles every day, uh, and he hasn't missed a day in 40 years. And so I am recording his story. It's basically a a history of Miami Beach uh, told through how his path has intersected with Miami Beach history. Um, so quite a different <laughs> genre and, and maybe audience, but um, the common thread will be that I'm interested in it. <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. And it was really great getting to know a little bit about this person, this amazing person. Yeah. Is there anything else you think is important to mention about him or the book or that time period or the Mau Mau? So in the 1950s and in the early 60s, the British controlled the presses. And so the Mau Mau soldiers were portrayed basically as, as bloodthirsty savages that wanted to kill white settlers. In fact, in, in Time magazine in 1960, they said that Mau Mau murdered their victims ranging from merciful garroting to having their heads bashed in and brains uh, ritually removed, dried, and eaten, um, which is not a very positive portrayal of <laughs> soldiers that were taking up arms to to get rights that they should have in their own country. And those headlines have a certain stickiness to the point that when I told my parents that I was going back to Kenya to sit at the feet of a, a Mau Mau general, they they kind of flinched. They said, what are you doing? Where are you going? Because they remembered those headlines. Um, and, of course, the image that I had in my head was this 85-year-old man who welcomed me into his home and his family and uh, taught me how to pick tea. So that's another motivation to tell this story, I guess, make the um, field more democratic of, of how that struggle was represented. And I thought, who better to tell the story of the Mau Mau Rebellion than a soldier who fought in it. How perhaps has this story or these stories changed your life and 
this getting to know this family and living with them on this farm and learning so much about this part of the world where there are so many stereotypes that you're uh, and actually you know shipping away at breaking down a bit it seems and how has it changed your life I think it's changed my life just by being open to learning from anyone that crosses your path and not judging people for where they come from but who they are and the general would always say we live to learn and I think that's true I think everything that I every situation that I'm in I want to learn from and grow from and I think it's also an important experience to be a minority and I was certainly a minority of one in that village um and I've never been so aware of being white (laughs) for sure and just everything that I did it was through a lens of she's doing that because she's white maybe and I was very conspicuous and I guess some people could say that made me a target but it also made me protected a lot of people were um, watching me and there's more good people than bad people out there in the world uh, I believe and um, and so I learned to trust that a lot of people are good uh, but also have your guard up. I'm actually going to backtrack here I don't think I asked you about your background and uh, how you became a writer and if you always wanted to become a writer and if you could talk about the process how you got to this point. I've, I've always been a storyteller. My granddad, uh, when we went to visit him in upstate New York, he would tell us stories before we went to bed. And uh, I loved being transported back to a, another time, another place through stories. And uh, he had a wonderful sense of humor. So I've always been interested in stories. And when I went to uh, the University of Virginia, I did a summer program in Peru and then a semester in Argentina and graduating from there I lived in Brazil for a year before backpacking in Africa for six months and I would send letters home to a small group of family and friends just I'm also an accident prone person so kind of my misadventures of of traveling in foreign lands and um, I would sometimes get an email from a stranger that said oh so-and-so forwarded me your email Um, how do I get on your subscriber list uh, and I was like, oh, um, well, I just add your name to the two box. Um, and so I guess I just kept on hearing, you know, if you can write like you tell stories, you should be a writer. And so that's, that's kind of how I started the journey. Just um, I didn't go to Africa to tell this story, but when I met the general, I knew that it was someone that I wanted to learn from and record. Uh, and I knew that he was 85 years old and I didn't have a lot of time to do it. So I got as many tools as I could uh, to tell his story before I went back and I learned the rest while doing it. Um, and the, the pattern in my family, I'm the baby of four uh, my with three older siblings and their career patterns. It goes lawyer, doctor, lawyer, Laura Lee. <laughs> so I am um, not the standard for my family, but they're very supportive. Um, for what I'm trying to do and what I'm doing. And so, yeah, I guess I'm, I was a storyteller before I was a writer, but I, I love writing. And so for aspiring oral historians, what kind of equipment do you recommend for recording these stories? And was there a point where sometimes the tape recorder just at first is intimidating? <laughs> and was there a point where it kind of, you don't realize that it's there anymore? Yes, I had the the luxury of um, time with the general and, and trust. As I said, we had a great rapport, and um, I had the tape recorder on the first day, and we were very clear what I was doing there. And my my one tape recorder, I think it was a Marant PMD-60, which was the, the, the great tape recorder, and then I had a backup for $49 or something, a Sony. That was Laura Lee Huttenbach, author of The Boys Gone, Conversations with the Mau Mau General. Coming up on Science Questions, the effects of a warming ocean and pollution on seabirds. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Headspin Events, presenting the fourth annual Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride and Outdoor Expo. To benefit Logan Regional Hospital, including cycling, food, and entertainment. 
Friday, July 10th, and Saturday, July 11th. Information available at cashcrownfondo.com. Skip the waiting room this week with Zorba Pastor on your health. Is it really wise to rip off your Band-Aid? And this tasty recipe for... Turkey, taco, casserole. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on your health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. A citizen science group is taking a census of dead birds washed ashore across the nation. They are trying to determine if mass die-offs are due to starvation, disease, pollution, and even climate change. Today on the program, marine biologist Julia Parrish, executive director of COAST, the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team, discusses her work and the threat of ocean warming and pollution. Seabirds live longer, breed later, and have fewer young than land birds. Walking along the beach in the north coast, you can spot western gulls, lots of common mirrors, species of cormorants, storm petrels, and a lot of migrants, such as snowbirds, surf scoters, burrowing nesting birds, and lately, a lot of Cassin's auklets. Parrish has been studying marine life for 35 years. And I have always been utterly, completely fascinated with marine life, uh, not least of which because the ocean is a really huge place and it's so foreign to humans. You know, we walk around on the land, but there's so much going on um, in the ocean under the water. And uh, I have spent a long amount of time studying seabirds. And seabirds are really fascinating creatures because you find them in almost every uh, marine habitat, from very, very uh, low salt estuarine kinds of places very close to the land, all the way on out to thousands and thousands of miles out at sea. You'll find seabirds flying around. So I've really been fascinated by seabirds, and I, I worked on seabird colonies for many, many years, and I spent a lot of time uh, and a lot of effort trying to figure out what made populations of seabirds go up or down. Uh, and there's lots of answers to that. It can be changes in the habitat. It can be changes in predator pressure. It can be disturbance um, from natural factors and from human factors. And what uh, I learned over time was, although I was finding out a whole heck of a lot about birds that were nesting on one particular colony, the one I was working on, and that's called Tattoosh Island, I wasn't so sure whether the patterns that I saw on that island were the same as everywhere else or were unique just to that island. And the reason that's important is if the patterns that I saw were unique just to the islands, I couldn't make a larger conclusion about what might be affecting seabird species, say, along the West Coast. So I needed a way of expanding what I was doing um, and what I was seeing. And the first thing I tried was uh, what most scientists do. You go out and you get some more grant money and you hire more students and more technicians and you go try and look at multiple colonies at the same time. And that's uh, we did that for a while, but that turns out to be really expensive. And still, at the end of the day, if I know what's going on in three colonies rather than one, how much more information do I have? So I was really looking for a way to... Um, get a much larger reach uh, at a finer scale, so many, many more data collection points. And I noticed uh, on Tatouche that uh, bird carcasses were washing up on the beach. And on that island, uh, we see bird carcasses wash up on the beach for two reasons. They float in on the tide um, from farther out to sea, uh, but also there are some avian predators, peregrine falcons and uh, bald eagles on that island that uh, go after the seabirds and will drop the carcasses in the water or actually even on the beach. And so I um, began to look at those carcasses and um, it made me think about, well, gosh, I wonder if um, you could 
start a um, a carcass identification and collection program along a broader coastline, not just on that one little island. So we piloted that uh, along the south outer coast of Washington for one summer. Um, there was a graduate student who was doing that work. And we were interested in some very basic questions. Do birds wash in uh, regularly on the tide? And if they do, uh, what species are they? And what's the condition of the carcass? Could you identify them? Do you have to be an expert? Um, and could we mark those carcasses? And how long would a mark last? So could we mark them in a way that next time we went back, we could see, oh yeah, that's carcass number one that we found. So we tried a whole bunch of different things that summer to just figure out what was going on. And we got enough basic information. And that was the um, that was the start of the COAST program, which is Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team. The 2013 Pacific Ocean warming that is suspected of causing the sea lion pup strandings and other animal strandings on beaches is also affecting the seabirds. Temperatures rose 4 degrees warmer than normal. That would be like waking up to 120 degree weather at home. Parrish says waters in the North Pacific are still quite warm. We are still seeing uh, quite warm water uh, in the North Pacific. And so that is worrisome because when the water temperature changes, um, the very small things in the ocean, the phytoplankton, um, which are like the single-celled plant-like organisms, and the zooplankton, the insect-like things that are feeding on the phytoplankton, all those populations, all those species change. And those are the base, the foundation of the marine food chain. So when those things are changing, those those differences telescope up. So it would kind of be like if you went to the grocery store and all of a sudden all the food was different. It's still food, but it's different food. You're not exactly sure what to do with it. You're not sure how to cook it. It might not taste as good to you. Um, you might not even like it. Uh, and so that's the that's the situation that we're seeing that really came home and affected Cassin's auklets uh, last year during their their wintering, their dispersal um, season. But now we're wondering how those uh, those changes and this continuing warm water that we're seeing uh, might have longer term effects on a much wider suite of species, including all of the seabird species that breed. Um, along the coast, so not just Cassin's auklets, but things like uh, things like common murres and um, rhinoceros auklets and tufted puffins and cormorants and gulls, basically that whole suite of species that you see when you go to the beach. And what about all the plastics that are floating around in the ocean? You know, we hear about these islands of plastic. There's been actually quite a lot of work that people have done on um, plastic pollutants. Uh, and and from the nanoparticles, so the really, really small things that you need a microscope to see, um, and we find those kinds of things in all sorts of personal care products. Um, face scrubbers, for instance, have tiny little plastic beads, um, which is not very good for the environment. All the way on up to really large um, things, things that a boat might run into and sink, like a dock that uh, came from the... Japanese tsunami. So it's those smaller pieces from the nanoparticles all the way on up to things that are about the size of maybe a bottle cap or a cigarette lighter um, that are deleterious to seabirds. And, and so there are certain species of seabirds that um, eat things just at the surface of the water. Uh, and they're often quite confused um, by uh, plastic particles. So it's not that they're picking them up and sampling them and saying, hmm, what's this? Is, it, is this good? They're, they're actually thinking this is a prey item. So let me give you an example of that. If you were an albatross, um, what would you be eating? You would be eating all kinds of squid, but you would also be eating flying fish eggs, those um, things that go into um, sushi. And those eggs are pretty sticky and they're pretty brightly colored. So they're bright orange or bright red or sometimes bright yellow, golden yellow. Um, and they're all clumped together in a little clump. Um, that's a few centimeters in length. And so when you see something on the ocean surface that's about that same size and about that same color pattern, what do you think if you're an albatross? You think, great, those are flying fish eggs. I'm going to eat them. And that's what you do. Um, and so it's that kind of thing, that prey mimicry, unintentional prey mimicry, that makes 
plastics so um, so harmful to seabird species. And studies have been done that show that the guts, the stomachs of, of birds um, can can fill up and do fill up with those plastics, and they have a hard time getting rid of them. Plastics can be harmful to the point of killing the bird. That was marine biologist Julia Parrish. To learn more about ocean warming and how you can participate in the Coast Citizen Surveys, contact coast at uw.edu. That's C-O-A-S-S-T at uw.edu. Sherry Quinn, Science Questions. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the Menden Mountain Music Festival, Saturday, June 20th at 250 South Main, featuring music, food, and children's activities. Gates open at 10 a.m., music from 11 a.m. until 10 p.m., camping available and details on Facebook. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about Gobo Fango, an enslaved boy who journeyed from Southern Africa to Utah. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Born about 1855 near the Cape of Good Hope in what is now the Republic of South Africa, Gobo Fango was shaped by hardship. While still a small child, Gobo Fango's mother, displaced by constant war and bitter famine, allowed him to be indentured to a white South African family called the Talbots. Missionaries converted the Talbot family to Mormonism, and soon they were making preparations to join other church members in Utah, when the Talbots finally set sail for the United States, Gobo Fango was forced to accompany them due to his indentured status. Arriving just as the Civil War broke out in 1861, a crowd tried to liberate him in Chicago, but to no avail. Thus, when the Talbots at last reached Utah and settled in Kaysville, Gobo Fango was still a slave. There is evidence that he remained so even after the 13th Amendment to the Constitution permanently abolished all forms of involuntary servitude across the United States in 1865. Fango lived in a shed behind the Talbot house and worked for the family into his teens when he was sold to the neighboring Whitesides family. Fango eventually moved from Kaysville to Grantsville in Tooele County, where he built up his own flock of sheep, but he did not go freely. The husband of one of the Whitesides' daughters had purchased him from the Davis County branch of the family. By the 1880s, Fango had moved to Idaho in order to run sheep in the Goose Creek Valley. Tensions between cattlemen and sheepmen were running high at the time, and Fango was killed in a dispute over grazing rights. The cattleman charged with his murder was twice acquitted of the crime. Fango's grave in the Oakley, Idaho Cemetery is marked by a simple inscription, Gobo Fango died February 10, 1886, 30 years old. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 